Good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Okay. Who is, who's rooting for the Chiefs today? Yep. Obnoxious group you are. Who, uh, who doesn't care at all? Yeah. It's a solid two-thirds of you probably. And uh, who's rooting for, what's the other team that's in the, I can't remember the, um, oh, the 49ers. We got 49ers fans. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Brave of you to voice your support in Southern California. Okay. That's great. Well, I certainly hope one of those two teams win today. All right, so um, we've been in this series, Isn't She Lovely? This is week two of it. And we've been talking about the parts of the church that are lovely. Like the church at its best, the way that Jesus intended is actually quite lovely. The church has all kinds of problems. In a few months, we're going to talk very specifically about the major problems and failures of the American church and why it often does not look like Jesus. But for this series, before we get there in a few months, I just wanted to spend a few weeks contemplating when it's at its best why the church is absolutely beautiful, why she's absolutely lovely. And so today we're going to continue on that path. Before we get there, I just want to tell you about something this Wednesday that's happening. It's our Ash Wednesday service. So this Wednesday marks the beginning of the Lenten season, the season of Lent. It's 40 days leading into Easter. And so it's this Wednesday that we begin a process of anticipation of celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's coming earlier this year than normal. And so uh, all around the world, all kinds of churches, and I, I get asked every year, isn't that a Catholic thing? No, Catholic churches do it as well, but so do Methodist churches and mainland churches and uh, evangelical churches all over the world uh, participate in uh, Ash Wednesday. And so this Wednesday night, 7 p.m. here in this room, uh, we'll do a service just welcoming in the Lenten season and uh, kind of contemplating our own mortality and the sorry state that we were in before Jesus decided to come and rescue us from that. And so it's really a beautiful season. Would love for you to show up. I realize that it's Valentine's Day this Wednesday. You don't want to deal with those crowds anyway. They're not good. So 7 p.m. here, avoid the crowds. If you want to do an 8.30 dinner, you get in a little bit later. It's not so crowded. And most of the really young people on their teenage dates will already have to be in bed. So I encourage you to come 7 p.m. this Wednesday and participate. We look forward to it. Last week, we talked about the fact that at its best, the church is the context for spiritual formation. In other words, Jesus didn't just invite us to pray a prayer or raise a hand or make a one-time decision. Jesus wasn't just about what you believe in your mind, but who you become with your whole being. And so the church then has functioned for 2,000 years as the context of that being formed to be more and more like Jesus, to be spiritually formed. When it's at its best, it's a wonderful place for that because of the community, because of the wrestling of scripture together, because of the breaking of bread together, because of the praying together. Those are kind of the things that we looked at last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that message, I encourage you to go back and check it out. This week, we want to talk about that in addition to the context for your spiritual formation, the church, when it's at its best, is a missional community. It's got a mission. It's got a purpose. So what is the purpose of the church? And to kind of wrestle with that today, we're going to look at a few passages, all of which are, are kind of Jesus-centered passages. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples, his closest 12 followers. They've been following him around for a while, and they've seen him do miracles, and they've heard him teach things that no one's taught before, and they've understood at this point that there are a number of people talking about Jesus. Who is this guy? who showed up on the scene and took the, the world by storm. Who is this guy who's doing miracles, who's gathering all these crowds? He's, he's made the religious establishment quite nervous because he's a total unknown, and now he is unsettling people and things. So Jesus gathers those 12 together, and as they entered into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, hey, people are talking. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is just a way of referring to himself. Who do they say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now, John the Baptist 
was a prophet that came before Jesus to declare that Jesus was coming. They were contemporaries at the same time. Elijah and Jeremiah are two of the most esteemed prophets in Israel's history. So while all three of these answers were wrong, they all had one thing in common. That as the people were talking about who Jesus was, they were talking about him as if he were highly esteemed. They revered him, the people did. So that's all well and good, but they still don't quite have his identity correctly. So he just asked them, well, who do you say I am, right? You 12 who know me better than anyone else, you 12 who have walked with me and seen everything, you've been here the whole time, who do you say that I am? Peter, always the first to speak up and usually wrong, gets it right this time. First to speak up and gets it right. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, for hundreds of years, Israel had expected God to send a Messiah, someone to come save them from uh, oppression. And first it was oppression of the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. But like we are an oppressed people and we need God to send a Messiah, a savior to come and get us out of oppression. They usually thought of this Messiah as a political leader, someone at this day and time to overthrow the Roman empire, to conquer Caesar and to be in charge so that Israel could be in charge once more. So Peter doesn't fully understand that what Jesus is actually gonna do is to come and liberate you from your oppressor and it's not Rome and it's not Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, it's not a nation. The great oppression that you are under is the sin in your own soul. It's your own propensity to make a mess of things, to hurt other people and to be hurt by them. That what all these empires actually have in common is that they have that at their core, this sinful nature, this desire to oppress, this desire for violence, like, like this is what they have at their core. And the real Messiah is gonna come not to liberate you from Rome, but to liberate you from the problem with Rome and all other empires and the problem of your own heart. That's what the Messiah is coming for. Now, Peter doesn't understand all of that but he at least understands that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he doesn't fully understand what his mission is. And Jesus says that even this is very, very praiseworthy. So Jesus replies, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Hell in this particular case just stands for that which would oppose the will of God. So nothing that opposes God is going to overcome this church. And this church is going to be built not just on Peter as a person, not as Peter as the starting place for the church, the very first leader of the church, but on Peter's confession that Jesus is Lord. In other words, the starting place for the church is the confession that Jesus is Lord, the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the belief that he's the Savior. That's the starting place for the church. It's, in other words, the proclamation of what we've historically called the gospel. Gospel in Greek is just euangelion. It means good news. This good news that Jesus has come to liberate you from that which is holding you back, which is the condition of your own heart. So the church begins with Peter's proclamation of the gospel, and the church continues with the proclamation of the gospel. Now, as we looked at last week, one of the challenges in the church proclaiming the gospel well is that here in the United States, at least, we have, we have, for years, been largely proclaiming a very truncated, partial version of the gospel. So last week, we looked at the American gospel, and the American gospel goes basically like this. You're a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's essentially what we've been saying is the gospel for a long time. And as we looked at last week, it's not that this is wrong. It's that it's incomplete. And we also mentioned last week, and I'll just mention it again today, hell here is understood differently depending on which scholars you talk to. So last week I mentioned that hell, for lots of scholars, and I believe the most clear teaching of the New Testament is that it's destruction. It means that unplugging yourself from God, your life source, means that in the end, if that's the final decision you make, 
you will no longer exist, that, that hell is basically annihilation as opposed to like eternal conscious torment. But people differ on that, but that's my belief. We did a whole message on this months ago. Uh, I'll do one again later. Uh, I don't have time to prove it today. So God, God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. And the problem with this, again, it's not that it's not true. It's that it's not complete. It's not even close to complete. Because what this totally leaves out is any kind of call for you then to follow after Jesus and live the way he taught us to live. So uh, I want to do this morning, because we're going to talk about the church's mission is to proclaim the gospel. And I want to start by doing an illustration I did about a year ago. And I'll probably do it again a year from now, because I just think it's important for us to get it into us. So this is called the gospel in chairs. I didn't come up with this, but I found it to be incredibly helpful. So we're just going to talk this morning about the gospel, and we're going to use a couple of chairs to illustrate that. Thank you so much, Ava. All right. So I'm going to give you two versions of this. The first one, I'm going to give you the American gospel that you're probably fairly used to. And then I'm going to tell you the more complete version as far as the New Testament goes. And, I think, and I'll just put the American gospel back up on the board so you can kind of see how it plays into the typical presentation that you hear. The typical presentation of the gospel goes something like this. God decided to create human beings and he created them for relationship with him. But human beings decided that they didn't want to have a relationship with God. They didn't want to go his way. They wanted to go their own way. So they turned their back on God and sinned against him. And God, because he is holy and righteous and cannot be around sin, turned his back on humans because they are not able to face one another as long as this sin acts as a barrier to their relationship. And so then God sent Jesus Christ, and Jesus came and became human. And he died on the cross for our sin. And he took on the wrath of God on sin upon himself. And because he received God's wrath that would have been meant for human beings, we now have a situation where we are both able to turn toward one another because of what Jesus did. And now, because of what Jesus did, you can spend eternity with God in heaven and be saved from eternal separation from him in hell. That's the American version of the gospel. Again, it's not totally wrong. It's just really, really incomplete. So I want to do this again. And I want to take it a little slower. I want to give a little more context. Are we good? Good, because I was going to do it anyway. So here we go. <laughs> God, for all of eternity, has existed as a triune community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He did not need to create anyone to be love or to experience love or to give love. He exists as a community of love. But God's desire was to create for himself a people who would then be invited in to participate in this eternal community of love that he is. And so he created us. He created us in order to have a face-to-face -face personal relationship with us. But we decided, and we see this very early on in the, in the story, to turn away from God and sin entered into our life because we disobeyed and unplugged ourselves from our very life source. But what we see over and over and over in the Old Testament and in the New is that God pursues us. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God entered the garden and asked where they were. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, God approached Cain and asked where his brother was and even protected him from those who might have violence against him for his misdeeds. God pursues us over and over and over again. 
But we continue to say like, no, God, I don't really want that relationship. I want to keep running away from you. And so God pursues us again. He pursues us by calling out Abraham to have many, many descendants so that those descendants can be blessed in order to be a blessing for one another. But those descendants kept failing, worshiping false gods. They didn't want to do that. So God turned toward them and pursued them again and sent the prophets to warn them that if you keep turning away from me, I'm going to have to be, go to more extreme measures in order to soften your heart to bring you back. But we said, no, we don't want to do that. So God said, tell you what, I'm going to put you in captivity in order that your heart might grow uh, a desire for me. Because I, if I'm your greatest desire, then you will finally have your hopes and wishes fulfilled. The, the greatest desire of your heart can only be found in me. So hopefully in captivity you will learn that, but we didn't learn that either. And so God pursues this once more by sending Jesus. And Jesus comes and he lives amongst us. He takes on flesh and blood, and he's the first sinless person to walk the face of the planet, which means to us, he looked kind of freaky. We didn't know what to do with him. Jesus came and he had a lot to say against religion, and yet he was always pulling the least of us in. He was always trying to show that those who were far from God and had made mistake after mistake after mistake could still come to him through the pathway that Jesus was laying down. He made people uncomfortable. He was constantly questioning the status quo. And he was constantly widening the tent for more and more people to come to him. He was showing them forgiveness. So he forgives a woman at a well. He forgives a woman caught in adultery. He forgives a thief on a cross. And he does all this with them having very little faith and very little theological understanding. This is the marvelous Jesus that we follow. He gives his life for us then in order that we might have perfect relationship with God in order that the sin that had infested our heart and messed us up might be dealt with. And in doing so, we're not only able to stay facing toward God as he pursues us, but it's even better than that. Jesus talks about toward the beginning of Acts and the, and the early church experiences, not just face-to-face -face relationship with God, but an indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. The triune God comes not to just live with us face to face, but to actually take up residence within us. And because of what Jesus does on the cross, we are able to abide in him forever and always. And there will be nothing in this world that can satiate the desire that we have for this other than the actual presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in chairs. And so this is what the church is supposed to be proclaiming when we proclaim the gospel. And again, the American gospel isn't all wrong. It's just really incomplete. So what are we supposed to do? What is the mission of the church? What is the purpose of it? Well, it starts with the Great Commission, the proclamation of that gospel that we just talked about. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I care what they believe, and then I need them to be baptized. But that's not the end of the Great Commission. It's the second half that the church has forgotten so much in the United States. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. In other words, it's not just about what you believe, it's also about who you become. Teach them to obey. Like, it's not just like a, a mental ascent to a set of beliefs, it is a whole life direction that he's asking us to live in. We looked last week that the early church movement was called The Way, because it was a whole way of life. C.S. Lewis, who I haven't quoted in like six weeks, it's insane. 
If some of you are feeling like thirsty, like a person parched in the desert for C.S. Lewis, here he is. He says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, men and women. It was the 50s, cut him a break, all right? To make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. So we have this great commission that we are to share the gospel with people and teach them to live it, to, to form their life in a certain way. But that's not all. Jesus also says this, and what's often called the great commandment. Matthew 22, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. There were over 600 Old Testament laws. In fact, the young boys specifically that grew up in Jewish culture in the day of Jesus and before that, many of them would learn large swaths of the Old Testament. They might learn the entire Torah, or some of them, if they had a lot of potential to potentially be a rabbi, the entire Old Testament memorized in an oral culture. You didn't have, you know, Old Testament copies of the scripture on your wall that you didn't pick up and read or apps on, you know, Bible apps on your phone that you also didn't pick up and read. You, you, you had to memorize it. And so they did. What Jesus is saying, all of that that you've memorized, all of that, the whole law, all the demands of the prophets, they all boil down to this. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love people. And in legalistic traditions, religious traditions, they really boil it down to the love God piece. I'll just follow this list of rules or laws, and then that is how I love God. What Jesus is pointing out here is the way that you, one of the major ways that you show that you love the creator is to love the creation. There's a vertical element to it and a horizontal element to it. Love God, love people. And you have to do both. In fact, loving people is one of the ways that you show that you love God. And he's pointing to this over and over. It's the great commandment. And so the church is called to do both things, to proclaim the gospel and to love the people in the world. John Stott, theologian John Stott says it this way. Here then are two instructions of Jesus. A great commandment, love your neighbor, and a great commission, go and make disciples. We have both. Our neighbor is neither a bodiless soul, that we should love only their soul, nor are they a soulless body that we should care for its welfare alone, nor even a body-soul isolated from society. In other words, there are two ditches that the church can fall into. One is to completely emphasize making disciples and nothing else. All we are to do is to make disciples, proclaim the gospel, teach people to love, do it, do it, do it, do it. Or they can fall into love the neighbors. We should clothe the, we should, we should clothe people. We should feed people. We should put shelter over people's heads. We should help people, you know, uh, uh, learn how to get out of addiction. We should do those kinds of things. And most churches are in one ditch or the other. Mainline churches in the United States have leaned way toward loving neighbors and trying to do community good. And oftentimes they've almost completely ignored the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples. Evangelical churches in the United States, many of them have leaned way into the Great Commission and making disciples and letting people know about the, Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel, which is great but have almost entirely ignored loving neighbors and doing actual good in the world. And again, lots of churches try to, try to find some center way, but, but, but lots and lots of churches fall into one of these two ditches. What we're called to do is take the road in between them to where we do both. We make disciples and we love our neighbors. It's the great commission plus the great commandment. John Stock goes on and says, therefore, if we love our neighbor as God made him or her, we must inevitably be concerned for their total welfare, the good of their soul, their body, and their community. What I'm saying is, <laughs> the mission of the church is to diligently live out the great commission and the great commandment. So for the next few minutes, what I want to talk about is why this is very difficult. Because 
for most of us, we're pretty comfortable living out the great commandment to love other people. We're good, you know, here at Versity Church, a number of times we've packed meals for hungry people all over the world, and we have, we have over a thousand people usually sign up to do that when we do that here. Like, it, it's awesome. You guys are like, is there a way to help? I want to help. We're really good with the great commandment. How is it that we make our neighborhoods better? How is it that we invest our time in others? Like, you guys have done that over and over and over uh, uh, through the years. If I'm honest, the thing that we struggle with the most in the United States is the great commission, the actual proclamation of the gospel letting people know that we are followers of Jesus and letting people know that we think that they should be too. That's challenging for us. It's challenging for us for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're introverted, it's really challenging. How many introverts do we have in there? I'm kidding. I'm, you know, that's the worst thing you can ask an introvert, right? Please identify yourself. Right? Some of you, by the way, you went right up with it. Well done there. I question whether you're actually an introvert. So um, yeah, if you're introverted, actually talking to someone, broaching it yourself about your faith, that's challenging for you. It's a great book that came out a few years ago, actually, that talked about introverts making disciples. Basically, it said, introverted people need to hear the gospel from introverts because they need to know that they can follow Jesus without having to try and become an extrovert. So if you're an introvert and you're like, I'm just not comfortable, that's not my thing, please know that you're actually holding the gospel in such a way that lots of people need to hear it and see it from you. In other words, introverts, I love you. You don't get off the hook here, Okay. But there is an uncomfortability that we have. I mean, the, you know, one, one of the top fears over and over in surveys across the U.S., one of the top fears that people have is public speaking, talking either to a group of people or even to someone that you don't know very well. Jerry Seinfeld has that old joke. It says, like, one of the top fears is public speaking, which means for most people, if they came to a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, right? That's just wild. <laughs> it's true, though. So, so if I'm like, so the proclamation of the gospel, telling people about Jesus, that's, a, that's, that's one of the two main missions of the church. Some of us are like, eh, I'll just do the other one and hope that the other one gets done by some other people, right? This is the call for everyone, though. But the other thing, in addition to just like the nerves of public speaking or perhaps your own introversion, the other thing that really makes sharing the gospel challenging is the American identity. There is an American identity that you have and I have filled with cultural values that we just most, mostly is invisible to us, but really has a lot of implications for our, our lack of desire to share the gospel. And so really for the remainder of our time, I want to talk through that and how we think through that. And I want to show some of the problems inherent to it so that we can maybe become better at doing one of the primary missions of the church. So here's a little bit to know about the American identity. There are two major types of cultures in the world. There are more than just two, but there are two major ones that we see over and over again uh, in the East and the West. One is honor culture, and the other is expressive individualism. Honor culture is much more, uh, more community-based. Honor culture is about setting your own desires aside for the good of the family or for the church or for uh, your, your you know, close-knit friends or for your community or for your, your nation. Honor culture uh, has... Both these have lots of problems, right? But honor culture really says, like, I will sublimate my own desires for the good of others. That's honor culture. Then there's expressive individualism. Expressive individualism says that uh, the only way to actually find uh, peace in my life is to follow my own heart and do what I think is best and do what I think is right. And other pe people may resist that, but I, if I follow my own heart and I'm true to myself, that's the only way to find true happiness and joy in my life. Guess which one is American? It's the second one. This wasn't even supposed to be a trick question. Now, the, if every movie that has moved you 
in the last 20 years is probably a fairly radical expression of expressive individualism. I've talked about this before. One of my favorite uh, animated films, I, I have uh, two children, so I watch more animated films than uh, we should have to. Both, actually, both of them are over there. It's William's birthday today. He's eight years old today. Congrats, William. <laughs> Jack, when your birthday falls on a Sunday, you'll get an applause too. <laughs> I looked at the calendar. It's about seven years from now. So, okay. Um, but, but here's, like, here, for instance, uh, the movie Moana, one of my favorite animated films of all time. What's the story in Moana? Moana is the daughter of a chieftain, and she's supposed to become a chieftain at some point in her life, right? That's her destiny. That's what her family does. That's how she can honor her own society. But that's not what her heart wants. Her heart longs for the ocean. And so what does she do? She tries to follow after her heart, and she goes into the ocean, even though her father tells her not to repeatedly. And in doing so, she's able to save everybody. The moral of the story at the end of Moana is follow your own heart. Following your heart, good for Moana, good for society. That's what you should do. That's the story of Moana. But it's not just that, it's every movie. Top Gun Maverick that came out, right? What's the story of Top Gun Maverick? Maverick is a maverick. It's a little on the nose, okay? He doesn't follow orders. He doesn't listen to those who are in charge of him. He does his own thing, right? He's told to back out. He's told you can't do the mission. And he goes and does it anyway in his own way. And in doing so, he leads his whole group, his whole squad to a, a victory over the unnamed enemy. It's very ambiguous actually who the enemy is in this particular film, but he leads them to victory over the enemy. The moral of the story is following your heart. Good for Tom Cruise, good for society, right? Over and over again, we see that. Barbie just came out, right? What's the deal with Barbie? Barbie wants to be a real girl, right? Going a little uh, Pinocchio there. Barbie wants to be a, a real woman and not be dictated to what, what she has to be by Ken or by the Mattel executives or anybody else. She wants to be a, really, a real woman. She wants to have a gynecology appointment. It's in the film. If you didn't see it, okay. I don't know if that was helpful to go there. All right, so the moral of all these stories is the same. Follow your heart. Good for you, good for others. That's the moral of the story. That's the American identity, expressive individualism. And it is, we're so saturated in it, we don't know to think of it in any other way. So in honor culture, self-denial was the honored trait for the sake of your family, community, or culture, right? You are as esteemed in this culture as you are willing to sublimate your own desires for the good of the whole. In expressive individualism, self-assertion is the heroic trait now, especially if it's in opposition to your family, community, or culture. In other words, like, who do we revere the most? Yes, those who follow after their own heart, but especially if the people closest to them told them not to, right? He had a dream to go to Las Vegas and become a musician. His whole family told him he was nuts, he was crazy. But then he got onto America's Got Talent, and he won the whole competition. And two years later, we don't remember his name. But still... <laughs> Everybody told him he was nuts, but he did it because he knew that his, he had to find his joy, find his happiness, find his freedom, follow his heart, right? That's the way that we think about it. And the more resistance you face, the more heroic you are in our culture. At its worst, then, honor culture can feel like a prison built by others. So you grow up in a culture a couple hundred years ago, and your father's a cobbler. I don't know why. He loves cobbling things. So your father's a cobbler, and what are you going to be? A cobbler. Yeah, it wasn't a trick question. Your father's a cobbler. You're going to be a cobbler. You're like, well, dad, I don't want to be a cobbler. I want to go work for somebody else in town. Well, too bad. Everybody else knows that you come from a family of cobblers. They're not going to hire you. They know that you are a cobbler. Well, then I don't want to do that. I'm going to go to the town uh, a couple towns down and try to get a job there. Nope, can't do that. That town knows you're actually from this town. They don't want you working over there and taking their jobs, right? This is where you belong. This is how you honor your family. This is how you honor your city. 
at its worst, it can feel like a prison built by others. Like, well, I didn't want to be a cobbler. I didn't want to live in this town. Well, too bad. That's just what you do. But expressive identity isn't really better. It's just different. At its worst, expressive individualism can feel like a prison built by us. You follow your own heart. Then your heart leads you down the wrong direction. How many of us followed our heart? And I'm not asking you to raise your hands. How many of us followed our heart and then ended up in a uh, vocation that at some point in our 30s or 40s, we went, uh-oh, I don't like this. I don't enjoy this anymore. Some of us spend our entire time, our entire lives climbing the corporate ladder only to realize that the ladder was leaned against the wrong wall. Follow your heart. Again, it's not all wrong. Each of these things builds in us some value. Like expressive individualism tells you that you should learn to be self-sufficient. That's a good value. It tells you that, you know, you can pursue the things that you're interested in. That can be good. And Honor culture tells you, you know, that sometimes it's best to lay your own interests down for the sake of it. These are good things, but they both have their goods and their bads. Maybe here's the challenge with expressive individualism. Sharing the gospel can feel morally wrong in a culture of expressive individualism. Why? Because if we're telling everybody, believe what you want to believe, you do you, follow your own truth, we start to believe. That. So, so then we're like, okay, well, I have found the gospel helpful. It's good for me, but I don't want to force my beliefs on somebody else. I don't want to impose on anyone else. Everyone's just trying to do their best, follow their own heart, find their own joy, find their own truth. I don't want to be annoying in the midst of that. It assumes that truth is highly, highly individualized and that all of us can just kind of accept whatever we think we want. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time is talk about the problems inherent in the American identity. And listen, it's not all problematic. In fact, without expressive individualism, without, uh, I mean, that's, it's not even possible to have expressive individualism without the gospel and the, the dignity of every person, right? This was not the way any culture was before Jesus. And so in part because Jesus preached and the early church believed that every individual has full dignity because they are sons and daughters of God, in part because of that, we got to this increasing individualism in the world. And so you can't really have it without it, to be honest with you. And I, there are great things that probably wouldn't have happened without a move toward that type of individualism. I don't think the civil rights movement of the 1960s probably happens without a belief that every person has dignity and every person ought to be able to follow their own dreams and pursuits. And so there's lots of good that has come out of this. But again, if this is the, if this is the final word on what we should do with our life, it's the, if it's the final word on our own self-worth and value is following after our own hearts, that's where we really get into trouble. And so I want to talk for just a few moments about the American identity problems. And uh, a few people have been highly helpful for me in this. Uh, Tim Keller, for sure. Charles Taylor is another one who's been highly helpful. And then Robert, uh, uh, Robert uh, Bell has been incredibly, incredibly helpful for me. Hall, I'm sorry, Robert Hall has been incredibly helpful for me in understanding some of the problems inherent in the identity narrative that were handed in the United States. So I just want to quickly go over a few of them. There are four, and then we'll be done. First of all, we are contradictory beings. Follow your own heart. Your heart wants things that contradict with one another. For instance, I want to live in California. That's a true desire of my heart. And I also want to live close to my parents who are in Texas. I don't want to live in Texas, to be clear. I want to live close to my parents, and they are in Texas. Well, I want both of those things. Well, I have to, I have to choose then, right? Some of us, right, we, we want to have a physique like Daniel Craig in the James Bond movies. We also want to eat fried chicken. Do you see how like, that, that doesn't always go, right? We want to stay up and binge watch The Bear on Hulu. We also want to get up early and work out and be alert at work tomorrow. These are contradictory desires. We're full of them all the time. And I've given you just a few kind of light examples. Here's another one, though. 
Many of us want a really fulfilling romantic relationship with a spouse. We also want a career or vocation that honestly, if we're going to climb it and be the best at it, will require 60, 70, 80 plus hours a week from us. And those two things don't go well together. Relationships take investment in time and not just like at the beginning, always. Career advancement and vocation, a lot, in a lot of fields, takes a lot of investment in time. And a lot of us try to have it both ways and we think we're supposed to be able to have it both ways, but truthfully, a lot of times these desires are very contradictory and we want both, we really do. But it's very hard to actually have both. So one problem with the whole like find happiness by following your heart, your heart doesn't even want things that mesh well together. Your heart wants all kinds of things that are contradictory. Francis Bufford, in his excellent book, Unapologetic, says it this way, you are a being whose wants make no sense. They don't harmonize. Whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, you realize, for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. In other words, your desires are so discordant that you are never actually going to be able to fulfill your hopes in life, all of them. They're, they're too discordant. You will, you will always have a life of unmet expectations if the final hope you have is to just follow your own heart because your heart wants things that don't even go together. We're contradictory beings. Number two, we are constantly changing. Uh, Lewis Meads, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary close to here, wrote a bunch of excellent books on forgiveness. So good. He also wrote a little short pamphlet a few years ago uh, before he, he passed, I think, in 2002. So a couple decades ago, he wrote a little short pamphlet on marriage. And one of the things he said is that his wife has been married to five different men, and all of them were him. Because <laughs> we change all the time, right? He's like, the only two things that kind of string these five versions of myself together are my commitment to her and my commitment to Jesus. That's really it. That's really it. If you're in your, if you're in your like, early 20s, Think of what an absolute moron you were at 15 years old, okay? The things you wanted, the things you hoped for, the things that you desired, right? Now, uh, as you get older, uh, it, that, that, that change and that looking back and seeing how foolish you once were, it slows down, but it does not stop. At 35, you look at your 22-year-old self and you think, what an idiot, right? At 45, you look at your 30-year-old self and you think, what an idiot. At 70, I'm told, you look at your 45-year-old self and you think, what an idiot. Here's, here's the takeaway that I want you to know. You are always an idiot, and you just don't know it yet. <laughs> and I am too. I am not excluding myself from this, okay? You're always an idiot. You're always a fool. You're always a jerk. You will always look back if you live longer, long enough, and see where you are now as a time of immaturity and a time of having lots to learn. That's the person you want following their own heart? Right? Because you're constantly changing. What your heart wants at 22 is different than what your heart wants at 42, which is different than what your heart wants at 72. You're constantly changing. And, if, and again, doing the things that you love and want, I'm not saying that that is bad. I'm saying if that's the end game, if that's everything, you're setting yourself up for a life of disappointment and failure because your heart's going to be changing all the time. So we're, we're contrary to beings. We're constantly changing. Number three, we are easily influenced. I, I know it feels like the desires of your heart or the desires of your heart, it feels like that. But what we often take for granted is the fact that we live in a culture that is constantly trying to influence our desires because your heart's going to have contradictory desires. So you have to like rake through them and figure out what you're actually going to do. And that's where your culture is heavily, heavily influencing you. For instance, when you live in a culture of radical, expressive individualism, then the culture is always going to be telling you to, to, I can't tell you how many times over the last few years, 
I'm going to rant for just a second. I can't tell you how many times over the last few years I have heard people excuse really unhealthy behavior that's damaging to the people around them as quote-unquote self-care. They call it self-care, and then they just abdicate all responsibility to anybody else. And, and, be, and because they've labeled it self-care, no one can question it without being told that they don't care about that person. Now, look, if, if you're burned out, if you're exhausted, if you're having mental challenges, like if you need to see a therapist, like I'm all for taking care of ourselves, but I think in many cases, we've abdicated all responsibility and we've taken the easy way out and we've just pulled on a cultural phrase, self-care, to just kind of like whitewash it all and to keep moving on. Like that's a cultural thing that's been handed to us. You're handed, a, in our culture, you're, you're handed a culture of materialism, the likes of which the world has never known. From everything from fast fashion to the latest Apple product, like your heart wants all of it because you're told all the time that that's what you should want. You're told all the time that that's what gives you value. That's what'll make you better than those around you. If you own it first, if you own it best, if you own it fastest, like you're just told that. And you think it's the desire of your heart, but it's actually the culture that has pressed that into you over and over again. We're just, we're easily influenced. We're easily influenced. I had one more uh, really good illustration of that, but we don't have time. So just trust me, it was great. All right, number four. Number four, we are totally exhausted. Look, there's, there's a lot to not like about honor culture, right? It feels like, oh, you've boxed me in. You've told me I have to do this profession. I have to live in this place. I have to marry this person. Honor culture says all those things. But you know what's helpful about that? It takes some of the pressure off. You know what your identity is and how you can contribute and who matters most to invest in. In radical, expressive individualism, you're told, figure it all out. Follow your heart. Figure out your profession. Figure out your loves. Figure out your sexual identity. Figure out your desires. Figure out where you live. Figure it all out. And included with that is constant comparison with everyone else. We are totally exhausted. And social media has made it that much worse because you can always see how much better someone is doing than you that guy's doing better than me? I remember him from high school. We, we, used to, we used to throw spitballs at this guy at high school. Look at the size of his house. We're totally exhausted. Many of us feel like we can't share the gospel with somebody else because we're imposing on them following after their own heart because that is a major value that we've been handed as the end-all, be-all in this country. What I'm telling you is, it is American individualism that is killing them and killing us. And if we don't replace following after your own heart with an identity that Jesus gives us, that you are loved regardless of what you do or do not accomplish, that you are loved and adored regardless of how badly you've messed up or not, that you are invited into the safety of the kingdom of God, no matter what your background is. If we don't replace American identity with that, more and more people are gonna live their life feeling less and less fulfilled. The thing that they think will bring them joy will actually rob them of it. So here's what you need to know. You are surrounded at all times by friends, family members, and coworkers who really, really, really need to know this. 
They need to know that the God who created them deeply loves them and has pursued them their entire life. That this God loves them so much, he wants to take up residence within them, wants to be as intimate with them as they could ever possibly be with anyone. And that this is actually the place that they will find joy. The living out of love and the proclamation of the gospel, the mission of the church, the great commission and the great commandment. These are not optional. They're not things that would be nice to do. They are literally the purpose and mission of the church. And contrary to what the American identity has taught you, people need you to share this with them. Don't hope they just find it somewhere else. Show them your life and tell them why you live it that way. Invite them to church. Invite them to check out something online that you found helpful biblically or around Jesus. These are the very simple. Invite them to your dinner table and at some point talk about your faith. Not, you're not using the friendship as a way to sell them something. You have a friendship with them because you love them. And you love them so much you can't help but tell them about Jesus. Because the American story is, follow your heart. Good for you, good for society. The reality is, follow your heart. Ultimately ends in disappointment, it's killing all of us. The gospel is, follow Jesus. Good for you. Good for human flourishing. Good for eternity. Here's the thing I just want you to remember, church. When the church is at its best, we're living out the great commission and the great commandment, and the people around you need Jesus more than you can possibly realize. Be the person to share it with them. Invite them in for a closer inspection of your life, which means living a life in the way of Jesus. When they're exposed to the church in that kind of way, instead of some angry preacher on television or someone holding a sign down at Huntington Beach, when they're exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of their goodness because of Jesus through the way that you live and you speak and you love and you invite, that's when they might be able to look at the church and say, isn't she lovely? God, thank you for our time together today. God, I'm very grateful that we get to be a part of your historic church, that we follow in the footsteps of the women and the men that have gone before us for 2,000 years of church history and pointing to Jesus and proclaiming his goodness and living and loving that out. God, would you please give us the energy to live out the great commandment of love and God, the discipline, the desire, the heart to proclaim the gospel through your great commission. May we take both of these, not as ditches, Lord, but as the two that go together in order to shape the world to look more and more like the kingdom you've invited us into. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Verb City Church Weekly Messages podcast. To learn more about Verb City Church, including info about our church ministries and ways to get involved, visit verbcity.church. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and leave a review so others can find our messages of hope and encouragement. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.